At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about how the coronavirus is changing Black Lives Matter. We'll speak with Melina Abdullah. She's one of the founders of the L.A. chapter. And we'll also talk with Katha Pollitt. She's got some recommendations about what to read during those days at home. But first, what's our strategy for beating Trump in November? Is the coronavirus making that easier or harder? For comment, we turn to E.J. Dion. He's a columnist for The Washington Post. We see a lot of him on MSNBC. He also teaches at Georgetown. Last time we talked here, it was about his bestseller, One Nation After Trump. It's a wonderful book. Now he's got a new one out. It's called Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. E.J. Dion, welcome back. It's great to be with you again. Thanks for having me on. Well, some of my friends say the coronavirus is creating a Hobbesian world where we have a war of all against all and every man is out for himself. Get all the toilet paper you can before the next guy does. You don't see it that way. No, in fact, I think uh, a virus of this sort, a pandemic of this sort, makes everyone a little bit more socialist uh, because ah. there is nothing like a pandemic to remind us that the common good is actually an idea that is in the interest of each of us. It's a case where what is in the interest of each of us is in the interest of all of us. Uh, we have already seen in conversations about health care that it is a very bad thing in the middle of a pandemic uh, if a whole lot of people do not have health insurance and can't see a doctor or can't even afford to get tested for the coronavirus. Thus, everyone has suddenly come out in favor of socialized medicine, at <laughs> least for coronavirus tests. Um, secondly, it matters what happens to your neighbor. It matters what happens to the wealthiest or the poorest people uh, in your community. Everyone is created equal when it comes to spreading a virus so that it really matters uh, that uh, others be taken care of. It really matters to all of us if people run out of purchasing power. It's very funny that even Mitch McConnell becomes a Keynesian uh, when a Republican president is in power and you have to uh, fight a recession that threatens to turn into a depression. So my sense is, of course, there are those Hobbesian or Hobbesian moments. I've always never known how the right way to pronounce that <laughs> is uh, out there in supermarkets and the like. But I think on the whole, people are thinking really hard about uh, what they have to do together to survive uh, in this case. And so I think it pushes primarily the other way. And that brings us inevitably to the election. My depressed friends say that crises usually help the incumbent. 
Trump will sell himself as a wartime leader. He'll give everybody $2,000, and this will make it much harder to defeat him. My cheerful and optimistic friends say that Trump's incompetence and megalomania have never been clearer, so it will be easier than ever to defeat him. And a few of my smartest friends say that almost everybody had already made up their minds about Trump before the virus hit, so it's all going to come down to turnout. Our base is bigger than his, so the question is, how much will the virus reduce the turnout, the turnout of our people, the turnout of his base? Please help us decide which of my friends are right. Well, I always tell everyone that I resigned from the prognosticators <laughs> union at about midnight on election night 2016. Uh, yes. So I will not pretend to have enormous confidence in any prediction I make here or anywhere else uh, this year, although I always like to point out I was right about the popular vote, but that's not obviously what determines our elections, unfortunately. My feeling is when you look at the kind of candidate Joe Biden is, and I think it's fair to assume for the purposes of this conversation that he will be uh, the Democratic nominee, I think Biden might actually be a good fit for this moment uh, because it is true that presidents can sometimes rally a lot of support if they are wartime or quasi wartime leaders. But Trump just isn't very good at that. Uh, he simply can't go out there and be unifying. He has to divide us. He's now trying to divide us over when we should uh, call off social distancing. Um, he started a debate on whether uh, grandparents, as the lieutenant governor in Texas remarkably said, should be willing to give up their lives so the economy can be good for young people. This from a party that claims to be pro-life. Uh, I don't think he's acquitting himself well. And there are a few polls out there showing that there's some approval of, you know, modest approval of his handling of this. Although I am struck at the huge gap between how people feel about Trump versus how they feel about the governors who get much higher ratings. But I think as a reassuring figure, and I think that's who he is, whatever else people think of him, Joe Biden might actually be the right candidate for the moment. He's obviously been eclipsed uh, because the primaries have had to be suspended and Trump is on television all the time. But I admit to a certain bias because when I watch him, I think of the, all those things your optimistic friends say about there is no way this can convey very well over time to a majority of Americans. Uh, but I am inclined to be more optimistic rather than pessimistic, also because I think Biden is a candidate who, even if he does have some turnout problems among younger Americans, which I think he will face, he does seem well set up to win back the voters who are winnable in the swing states in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin and Arizona. Uh, and he seems to be doing very well in the polling that we've seen in those states. So that pushes me to, toward more optimism. But again, I don't trust my own predictions anymore. Well, in your book, Code Red, you point to the 2018 election as the best example of how the Democrats should beat Trump in 2020. And there, 
Turnout was wonderful. Turnout in 2018 was the highest in a midterm since 1914. It was up 13 points over the previous midterm in 2014. And of course, the result was that the Democrats recaptured the House with a 43-seat gain, flipped seven Republican-held governorships. Will it be possible to do this again in 2020, or has everything changed because of the virus? Does the virus mean 2018 doesn't really matter anymore? One of the other reasons I feel that Biden may turn out to be a stronger candidate than a lot of people think is because the coalition that he has put together in the primaries looks very much like the voters who helped put together the 2018 midterm sweep. And by the way, it's really quite shocking how well Democrats did in 2018. They've got 25 million more votes. Democratic House candidates got 25 million more votes than Democratic House candidates did in the previous midterms uh, in 2014. Republicans got more votes, too, but they only got 10 million more votes. That's an enormous shift. And two of the key components of that were sweeps in Uh, suburban areas, basically outside the South and even in parts of the South, like uh, in Texas and the Atlanta suburbs and obviously in Virginia, although Virginia is not much of a southern state anymore. You had that with Biden. And then he also obviously we've talked about this a lot over the weeks, picked up an enormous African-American vote so that one can feel at least going into the race that he has a reasonable shot at turning out a decent African-American vote. I think that coalition, the primary vote so far, also just turning to the primaries, uh, the turnout was way up in most of the primaries. Uh, In Virginia, if I remember the figure right, it was up uh, 69% over four years ago. In any state with early voting, turnout seemed to go Uh, way, way up. So all these are indicators that the feelings of 2018 have not gone away. And the mobilization of the non-Trump part of the electorate, which is Democrats, but also a lot of independents and a lot of even uh, some Republicans or former Republicans who just can't stand Trump, that seems to be a very mobilized piece of the electorate. And what I argue in Code Red, the core argument of the book is that Progressives and moderates need to come together to create this majority. The first sentence of the book is, will progressives and moderates feud while the country burns? And I argue that whatever disagreements they might have, uh, progressives and moderates, they broadly want to move in the same direction, whether you are for single payer health care or finishing the job with Obamacare and covering everybody with a public option, you are for covering everyone. The Republicans are trying to blow up Obamacare. I noticed that Joe Biden took a significant move in Bernie's direction, which I thought was a good idea, on uh, Bernie Sanders' free college idea. Biden substantially expanded his promises uh, on free college. He has become more expansive on the need to act on climate change. Again, The words, but also the music coming out of both Bernie Sanders and uh, Joe Biden so far is that they understand that history will not treat them kindly if either of them do things that will allow for the reelection of Donald Trump. 
obviously, if Biden's the nominee, he would be the loser. But Sanders, I think, takes very seriously the obligation to do his part in beating Trump. And at the same time, he can continue to bring pressure on a President Biden and on the Democratic Party to move in a more progressive direction. And he has already done that when you look at where Democrats are now compared to where they were eight years ago. Well, one of the biggest questions about moving in a more progressive direction, of course, concerns the response to the economic collapse that social distancing is bringing about. The Obama recovery from the crash of 2008 seems to have deepened inequality in America. Is that a fair statement? To some degree, that is. Or you could put it another way, that the trends toward inequality were not reversed in the Obama years. And some of the regional inequalities probably grew as a result of the Great Recession. In If you take the period 1980 to the present, there were really only a couple of years toward the end of the Clinton administration where you actually had growth that was shared roughly equally across the quintiles. So, yes, we have had a long period of uh, inequality. It's striking when you looked at the Democratic response to the stimulus fight this time, the whole Democratic Party, even the most conservative uh, among the moderates in the Senate, and I would say Joe Manchin might fit that category pretty well, were outspoken at how wrongly pro-corporate the um, original Republican stimulus is. Manchin said, and I'm quoting uh, the key phrase, he said, I can't understand why Republicans are balls to the wall for big corporations and ignoring Main Street and workers. So hmm. something has happened to the Democratic discourse uh, across the board. And in a way, uh, if Biden wins, it's an opportunity to get done some of the things that were not done in the Obama years. That would include strengthening uh, labor rights in the country. And I think Biden's background as sort of the pro-labor kid from Scranton might make him more inclined to do that, extending health care to everybody. And I think um, making sure that the road out of this recession is a more we take a more progressive path out of it. And I think we're going to have to because so many people are going to be hurt in the next several months. It really is as close to a New Deal moment as we have had in a very long time. Now, of course, a kid, that's an optimistic view of a very bad situation. But I think both the popular support for more progressive action will be there and the need for it to restore the economy, I think, will push a lot of people in that direction, including we see for the moment Joe Manchin. E.J. Dion. His new book is Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. It's always great to talk with an optimist. EJ, thanks for talking with us today. It's great to be with you always. Thanks so much. Now it's time to talk about Black Lives Matter in Los Angeles with Melina Abdullah. She's a co-founder of the L.A. chapter, and she's professor of Pan-African Studies at Cal State L.A., She's appeared on MSNBC, CNN, ABC, PBS, and she's also a host of Beautiful Struggle on KPFK. Melina, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. 
Well, the coronavirus, of course, is changing almost everything, including the jails, the courts, the police. We need to talk about all that. But before the virus hit, Black Lives Matter fought hard for two things on the ballot in Los Angeles. First of all, forcing the D.A. Jackie Lacey into a runoff. Uh, the news today is that you seem to have succeeded. Congratulations on that. Thank you so much. We're definitely celebrating that victory. And you yourself got onto page one of the papers before Election Day in a way that was not exactly what you had planned. Tell us what happened. So the day before Election Day, early Monday morning, we went to Jackie Lacey's home which is in Renata Hills, so it's um, kind of out from the city. And we've been there before. This is a standard kind of way that people protest um, uh, public officials. Um, I think the first time I went to a public official's home was with my labor union when we went to Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger's residence and did a protest there, right? And so, you know, public officials don't have the same expectations or shouldn't have the same expectations or rights to privacy as private citizens. That's why they're public officials. And so we went to her home um, at about six o'clock in the morning, a little before 6 a.m. And she had committed to having a public meeting in black Los Angeles um, by December 1st. She did not have that meeting despite repeated calls for that meeting. So she committed to having that meeting to um, some of our comrades in Stonewall Democratic Club who stood in solidarity with Black Lives Matter and said, why won't you meet with black folks? Why are you coming to West Hollywood? Why won't you meet with black folks? Because we had some of the families of those who've been killed by police at their meeting and had been outreaching to them. And so she failed to follow through on her commitment to have this meeting. And so we said, well, let's bring the meeting to her. And so we actually chartered a bus. We put about uh, 30 of our folks on the bus and pulled up to her house and pulled out 30 chairs, 25, 30 chairs, and set them up on her front sidewalk um, and intended to force the meeting. Um, and so I said, well, let's invite her. And I did so kind of nonchalantly, not thinking much of it, walked to the door with um, one of our comrades from White People for Black Lives. And we had one other person was um, filming and rang the do doorbell. So she has a ring doorbell system, which is kind of like a surveillance system. You can see who's at the door. You're on camera when you ring that bell. And she's very familiar with me and with all of us. We protest outside her office Every single Wednesday, we've been protesting outside our office for two and a half years. Um, we even had a protest yesterday. So she knows me. Um, we've also had meetings and other interactions. It's not like she thought I was an intruder. So ring the doorbell. Um, and she actually had two doorbells. So we rang both of them twice, um, you know, rang them, paused for a minute, rang them again. And we hear something at the front door. And it sounds like a gun being cocked, but uh -oh. I thought I was being paranoid. So I look at my comrade Dahlia and I said, oh, that doesn't sound good. But I was kind of <laughs> half joking. Yeah. And the door flings open and it's her husband with the first thing out the door is this huge handgun 
point it directly at us, kind of panning the three of us. Um, and then I don't know what came over me. I just said, good morning. Right. And, um, everybody can see it. It went viral. The video went viral. And um, he says, get off my porch. And I said, um, can you let Jackie Lacey know that we're here or something like that? Then he, he kind of trains the gun on my chest. Um, and we're in very close proximity. His fingers on the trigger. We had heard the gun being cocked. So we know it's loaded. I said, are you going to shoot me? And he says, I will shoot you. Get off my porch. I don't care who you are. And it was something along those lines. The exact details are on the video, right? The whole interaction lasted less than 30 seconds, but had, you know, of course, an enduring impact. I've never been threatened in that way in my life. And that's certainly not what we expected going to the home of a public official in protest, even if people don't agree with the protest. Right. That's not the expectation of and, a protester. And this was then front page news. The video went viral. And the next day, the L.A. Times had a second page one story, this one by Steve Lopez. And the headline was, quote, I will shoot you isn't a great campaign slogan for D.A. Jackie Lacey, close quote. That was on election day. And your goal was to uh, force her into a runoff, which, as we said, you've succeeded. Jackie Lacey is the, I believe, the only black woman ever elected district attorney in the United States. Why didn't Black Lives Matter support the black woman D.A. running for re-election in Los Angeles? Well, she's not the first, the only black woman D.A. So, you know, we have Bar Marlon Mosby in Baltimore. There's a few others, Kim Fox in Chicago. However, you know, she is one of a few. It's really important that when we talk about representation, Lonnie Guineer writes about this all the time, um, and I think most poignantly in Tyranny of the Majority, when she talks about authentic versus descriptive representation. So, you know, we can have descriptive representatives, right? There can be black folks who um, are elected to office but represent their own personal ambition rather than representing the collective interests of black people. And that really doesn't do anything for black advancement. In our view, Jackie Lacey is a descriptive representative. She is not an authentic representative. She has not been willing to even meet with the families of those killed by police. She's been someone who's been backed by um, one of the most murderous, uh, the most murderous uh, police forces in the nation, including LAPD and L.A. County sheriffs, both of whom are her largest um, campaign contributors. So LAPD, um, uh, LA Police Protective League, which is their um, officer association, gave her a million dollars for her reelection. Um, ALADS, which is the association for the LA County Sheriffs, gave her 850,000. Um, wow. And so this is, you know, who's backing her. So in the words of um, one of our um, most revered scholars and writers, Zora Neale Hurston, all skin folk and kin folk. So just because she okay. happens to be black, 
doesn't mean she represents black interests. So we've been talking here about electoral politics, but Black Lives Matter is basically not uh, a, a voting group. Uh, what is let's talk about your perspective on the relationship between protest and politics. Black Lives Matter does believe in voting as a tool of liberation, but we also know that no group of people have ever voted themselves into freedom, right? It requires um, engaged action on the ground. So um, it, rather than moving from protest to politics, we believe in protest and politics. We will absolutely vote, but we're not giving up our right to protest. And um, our duty, our sacred duty to protest. So the idea of being constantly outside of Jackie Lacey's office, we know that the reason that she was forced into a runoff is because of our ongoing and consistent protest. And now we have the coronavirus. It's changing a lot about how criminal justice is practiced here. The L.A. Times reports that the LAPD made fewer arrests during the first 15 days of March. The L.A. sheriffs uh, have announced that their arrests have plummeted from a daily average of 300 to 60. The courts have closed. What is your perspective on, on all of this? Well, I, I think that that's great that arrests are down. We think that our communities are over-policed anyway. I think that it's important, though, as we're talking about what is really a health care and economic. I was very troubled by LAPD and L.A. County sheriffs asking for more money and by um, the announcement of the mayor that he'd be putting more police on the streets. And so it's really important that as we're looking at a health care and economic crisis, that we invest in those things that actually um, remedy those issues, right? So we need more public health workers. We need more EMTs. We need mental health providers. We need housing. And some of the most vulnerable people to the coronavirus are, are the people who are incarcerated. Yes. So we are part of Justice LA and Justice LA has also put out a statement saying that all folks being held pre-trial should be immediately released from our jails. The majority of those who are in jail are in jail and have not been convicted of a crime. They're being held because they don't have the money for bail. And so those folks should be released. Those folks who are um, convicted of nonviolent crimes should be released. We're seeing what's happening nationally. We just had a case of COVID-19 in Rikers Island. And we know how quickly that will spread through jails and prisons. And so we want to decarcerate as much as possible. Most of the people who are in prison and jails are not there because they pose any viable threat to communities. And so if we're going to practice social distancing, we need to practice social distancing wholesale and say that our people who are being held behind bars need to be kept safe as well. And this is part of the larger meaning of Black Lives Matter. It's not only people who have been killed by the police. It's people who are incarcerated, who have been convicted of crimes. Their lives matter, too. Yes. Black Lives Matter believes all black lives matter. Black queer lives, black trans lives, black incarcerated lives, black 
elder lives, all black lives matter. And we know that when black lives matter, it extends out to everyone else. Melina Abdullah, she's one of the founders of Black Lives Matter in L.A. Melina, thank you for all your work and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Since we're all staying home, we're looking for advice on things to do. And so we turn to Katha Pollitt, poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. We reached her today at home in Manhattan. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Yes, I'm always home. Well, a lot of us are looking for suggestions about movies to watch. What do you know about this film, Contagion? Contagion. Yeah, we saw that the other night. And it's, uh, it's very exciting, um, as in stressful, upsetting, disturbing, makes you want to tear your hair out and <laughs> never leave your apartment. <laughs> um, in, in this movie, a pandemic kills millions of people. But the good news is it's ultimately defeated by a black guy, a Jewish guy, and the three most beautiful women in the world. <laughs> Well, that that sounds like a must viewing, but you say it was stressful and upsetting. Do you have a better idea of uh, how to spend your time than watching Contagion? Well, this is a very good time to catch up on the classics. So I took a look at uh, Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, which I had read like, I don't know, 50 years ago, a million mm -hmm. years ago. It's a terrific novel. He wrote it in 1722 about London's Great Plague of 1665 when he was only five years old. And uh, it's, it's like so many 18th century, wonderful 18th century books. It's both incredibly boring and marvelous. So you're simultaneously annoyed saying, oh, just get on with it, will you? <laughs> and also amazed at how smart and well-written and interesting it is. I imagine that Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year shows just how much things have changed with epidemics since 1680. Well, some things have definitely changed. Um, there are uh, coronavirus is not as fatal as the Black Plague was. And uh, there aren't a lot of people dying in the streets. Uh, <laughs> so that's all good. Things could be mm. worse. And uh, most people survive COVID-19, which is not was not so true of the Black Death. But some things don't change, mostly having to do with the folly of human beings. We may have come far, you know, medically, technologically, socially. You know, it's not the 17th century. We can manage emergencies much better if we choose to do that, as not everybody does. But in some ways, people haven't changed at all. Uh, they had quacks, they had miracle cures, and we still have those, um, even though we have far higher levels of education and medicine can actually help you, which it couldn't really do back then. Um, so we have, you know, they had, oh, let's go to this fortune teller and we have crystals and anti-vaxxers and homeopathy. So uh, in Contagion, interesting, there's a wonderful theme that is more meaningful now than then, where there's a blogger who is pretending to be a crusading journalist. He's always going about, print is dead, print is dead. And he makes millions decrying the mainstream media and promoting a bogus cure. 
And I say, you know, today he'd have his own show on Fox News. That, that's the <laughs> standard now. Um, and, and this was, this was, uh, you know, how different things were in 2011, where that would seem like, oh, here's this really weird thing that's going to happen. It happened. You know, if you compare the Lord Mayor of London in 1665 to Trump, there's just no question they, that that long dead politician handled things much better. I mean, you know, we'll, we're going to forget how Trump fumbled and denied everything in the critical early phase of COVID-19 when we could have made an enormous difference. And he was saying it was a Democratic hoax. I mean, really, you know. So sticking with Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague here for a minute, I, I imagine one of the biggest differences is is that God. Wasn't God a much bigger explanation of things in the in the 17th century? The plague was God's punishment for the wicked or something like that? Well, you know, it's funny. I don't really get Defoe's actual position because he was very against the very popular idea that the plague was God's judgment on the unright- unrighteous. He, he noticed that, well, actually, good people and bad people seem to both be struck down or both escape. There, you, there's really no rhyme or reason to it. But he also believed that somehow the hand of God was in it, but not in a miraculous way. He had that clock, you know, that 18th century God is the watchmaker idea where, wow. you know, he everything is nature except every now and then. God puts his finger on the scale. But he was, uh, I, I think he was, uh, for his time, a very, very rational person. Can I tell you something that isn't in my column that um, I forgot to mention about him? He Please. Figured, okay, so he figured out what we're, we are also figuring out about COVID-19, which is how can it be that you're fine and then all of a sudden you're sick? They did not understand this back then, and that was where they got the idea that you could be struck down in an instant, that, the, that this plague just worked incredibly quickly. But actually, he said, that's not true. You had the plague, and it was working internally, and then what looks like your sudden death is actually the last phase of a disease you've had for a while, and you were contagious all that time, and that's how it's wow. Yeah. So that's just like now. So today, uh, there are a few people who believe that God's hand is evident in the plague, aren't there? Well, there are. I mean, feminists, lesbians, gay people, liberals, atheists, those are all blamed, as they always are, to say nothing of Trumpies who believe the coronavirus is a democratic hoax. Or what about, oh, yeah. Rush, Lim- what about Rush Limbaugh? I love this. How this, how people can be so ignorant and stupid and be listened to by millions of people is such a mystery. So he told his millions of listeners that the reason it's called COVID-19 is because it's the 19th coronavirus. So it's obviously something that happens all the time and nothing to worry about. In fact, 19 stands for 2019, the year this particular disease was uh, began. So there it is. So. After we watch Contagion, after we read Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, do you have any other recommendations for reading? Well, I do. I I think you should try The Decameron. This is a fun book that is 800 pages long, so you might not get all the way through it. It's about uh, 10 people, 10 young people, seven, seven beautiful women and three handsome young men, and they escaped the plague of 1348 by holing up in the Florentine countryside where they flirt and tell dirty stories and have a high (laughs) old time. Uh, 
So I recommend that. Just take yourself out of this current world and put yourself in fantasy Italy. So 1348, that was that was a really long time ago. Are there are there any lessons for us uh, 652 years later? Well, I like the message of don't let yourself go. It's hard to do, I know. But you'll just get depressed if you if you wear the same clothes every day and so keep your standards up, and um, I'm keeping my standards up. I'm wearing, uh, right now, I'm wearing a very pretty pair of purple pants and a nice black shirt, and I've got my earrings on, and I put, you know, glop in my hair. Even though it's just me and my husband here, no one gets to see this except for him, although he is a real person, so there's that. And I think you should, you know, try to make a nice meal if you can. Go for one of those solitary walks. Play music, play games, keep up your friendships. Even if it's, you know, online, you know, it shouldn't be this shouldn't be the moment at which you sort of turn into a bat in a cave. Katha Pollitt not turning into a bat in a cave. Her new column at The Nation is called Tips on Self-Isolation from Daniel Defoe and Giovanni Boccaccio. Katha, thank you for the excellent advice. Thanks for having me, John. Stay well. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe with this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners. You can get digital access to all our articles for less than $1.50 a month. Or you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. That's at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe, one word. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.